The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. The eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who had heard them laid them in their heart. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before for him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Allie. Well, good morning. My name is Ben. If we haven't had a chance to meet, um, we're glad you're here for uh, this Sunday. And um, we love to know folks. So if you're new, uh, you can catch uh, Mark or Sammy or myself or Marnie or anyone um, at the door or anywhere. Uh, We love to know our people. So um, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, Before we begin and launch into this um, Luke 1 passage, I want to take one quick caveat and plug. Uh, And you know, throw that quote up, uh, Steve, thank you. Um, uh, This is great. Can you? That's better. Okay. So as we begin this Christmas season, launch into December, uh, one of my favorite um, writers, uh, theological thinkers, Fleming Rutledge, she wrote a book called Advent, The Once and Future coming of Jesus Christ. She says this about this Christmas season, that the entire thrust of this season at the end of the church year is designed to bring us face to face with reality. Reality about sin and death, reality about human race, reality about God. Something ultimate has entered our world, something or someone that calls uh, us to attention, calls us out of our daily preoccupations, our routine points of view. That is what this season with its special Bible readings, is designed to reveal. That's why Christmas is, that's why we're supposed to be warmed with. And so with that in mind, next slide. We have made a little uh, uh, scripture reading bookmark uh, as you kind of wet your whistle with the story of Advent, the themes of Advent, the heart of Advent, of Christ coming once in the rear view. And his coming again as we await for that. So uh, they're at the door in the back and at the coffee station and 
next to the men's urinals. So they're everywhere around the, the building. But um, grab one. They're really helpful uh, just to daily read through and, and be shaped and formed by Christ has come and he's coming again. End of plug. Uh, we're beginning a new sermon series. And um, as we enter into this uh, Christmas season, everyone has their favorite Christmas singers and songs and and their favorite Christmas albums, right? If it's in the 50s, it's Elvis, it's Blue Christmas, noteworthy. If the 60s, it's the Bing Crosby the classic. You can see it and hear it, everything. Uh, with the 70s, we've got John Denver and the Muppets. How could we forget about John Denver and the Muppets? With the 80s, it's Wham's Last Christmas, and it's also Amy Grant's. Um, Amy fans in the house, love it. And if it's the 90s, it is Mariah Carey, yes. Love it or hate it, that's what it is. So uh, the songs of Christmas that different people throughout the decades, through, through different times, have sung in their own voice, their own words about Christmas. Their own voice and their own words about Christmas. And that's exactly what our sermon series is about, that we're looking at the songs of Christmas, how there's different people with their own voice and their own words singing about the coming of Jesus. And we'll explore that over the next three and four weeks. How we'll see this morning, Zechariah, he, he's, his heart is moved and something is stirred up in him that he sings in response to the fact that the Messiah is coming and breaking into our world. He's come. Song is the thing that notes these people, and actually it's this invitation that it would mark us, that we would sing to, that our heart would sing. And so this morning we'll begin with the song of Zechariah, and it's this, it's the first Christmas song ever, actually. I guess you could look at it. Because uh, he sings before Jesus has come. That he sings this song that he, that he sings. And uh, what we need to note from the beginning, though, is that it's not um, this um, pep song. It's not something that will get you going. It's actually something very honest, even um, melancholy or grounded, even confusing. But it's a Canadian accent. It ends on a high note. It's something that really does, begins in an honest way and ends in a hopeful way. That's why we lit the first candle of hope. And so this morning, as we look at the song of Zechariah, we'll look at two things in particular. First, we'll look at the forge of silence the forge of silence, and then second, we'll look at the fullness of song. But as we look at this story and this history that we tap into, this man who sung because Jesus has come, and us, we sing because Jesus is coming back. Let's go to our God together and ask him to move among us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you all um, with different expectations in the Christmas season. But Lord, all of us do come with expectation. It could be that we, we, um, we, we want to enjoy every bit of tradition and nostalgia that the season has to bring. Because there's much. Watch every movie, listen to every song, see the lights, hang lights. It may be that we um, want to be really close to the family. And we're just so grateful for the family and the friends that we have. It could be that we really um, come with an expectation of what if it's different this year? All of us come to this topic and this reality and the season of Christmas with different expectations. And Lord, as we look at this story, would we 
do we not be shy and coy with those expectations? But instead, hold them with an open hand to see what you do with them. Would you do much because you've promised to do just that? We pray this in your name, Christ, the one who has come and entered our world. Pray in your name. Amen. So first this morning, we see the forge of silence, the forge of of silence. And what's happened is um, we're kind of shifting around in the Bible throughout the year in our sermon series. We go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. And what we we have here is this introduction into uh, Luke in Luke 1. And Luke is a gospel, meaning it's he's one of the four writers at the beginning of the New Testament, pinning and writing all about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the ministry of what he began to do, as Luke would say later on in his gospel. It's all the starting point. And so Luke is this gospel writer, and he enters into this story of the drama of Scripture after um, 39 books of the Old Testament. After 39 books of the Old Testament, God has done much with his people. He said, hey, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to give you prophets so you know what I'm thinking and what I want for you. The Ten Commandments, not all this is in order, but all these things, these covenants he makes with people in these 39 books of the Old Testament, God does much with his people. What he does in the 39 books are about he and them. And right between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's something that happens, and it's nothing. There's 400 years of silence in this intertestamental period. The Old Testament, God's done much with his people, and then he goes dark. There's radio silence. He doesn't move. He doesn't speak. He does nothing. And you have to be wondering, is he up to anything good? Enter in Luke 1. And Luke writes, as a gospel writer, he says, hey, I'm writing this book and my gospel to you, this man named Theophilus, so that you may believe. So you, so you understand the facts and the beauty and the fullness of belief. And then he begins by telling us about Zechariah. And Zechariah is this man in Luke 1. And Zechariah is, he's older. And he's a man of the cloth. He's, he's the clergy. And he goes in and out of the temple often when it's his turn to do the duties. And he goes in there and he, he performs sacrifices for the people and leads the people. And so he had this routine, usual sacrifice that he was going to do. And he goes in one day and he's in there for a while. And uh, you have, people begin to wonder, he's, is he okay in there? And so uh, all of a sudden he comes out and he can't talk. And so what had happened as he went into the temple making the usual sacrifices, what had happened in there is that Zechariah had encountered an angel Gabriel. This angel who had come, this angel of the Lord had come and met him. And the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, Zechariah, I see you and I'm coming to you. And I've got some amazing news for you, Zechariah. Zechariah, you are married to Elizabeth and you and her are old. But the Lord looks at you and sees you and he's going to give you children. He's going to give you a son, and the son that you're going to have, because God is going to give him to you, is he's going to have this job description of being the forerunner, the preparer of the way of the Messiah to come. After 39 books of the Old Testament, 400 years of silence, and wondering, guess what? The snow is thawing out. Spring is coming, and the Messiah is on the way, and your son is going to be the one to prepare the way, prime the pump for him to do everything he's going to do. How amazing is that? 
And Zechariah's response is not screaming in joy or dancing or running and telling everybody or Price is Right uh, Jubilee. What his response is, is this. He says in verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The news that Zechariah gets is something he has longed for. And what he doesn't say is, it doesn't come across as this. Really? Like, how, how, how do I know it? This is going to be great. This is going to be great. Just tell me how it's going to happen. I'm so excited. It's, it's, it's this. He says, how? How, Gabriel? How is this going to be true? How am I going to know this to be true? He doesn't meet the news that he's been waiting for for decades with joy. He meets it with disenchantment. He looks at Gabriel. He hears everything. He says, how is this going to happen? This is too good to be true. It's too good to be true. And in fact, I'm going to not believe it. It's too good to be true. Now, if you are uh, someone who has done all the your Christmas shopping and Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all those things, bravo. There's the 98% of us that exist also that haven't done it. And so last year and the 98%, um, my wife and I were at, at my folks' house and um, with my family. And my sister was there and she found on her phone this deal of all deals. And this deal of all deals was... Uh, she found was that there's a shoe named On Clouds. Who is On Clouds in here? Some people are very, very shy to, to <laughs> confess they have On Clouds. You all have On Clouds. You know it. But they're 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 great shoes. They're running shoes. They're they the people who made them think very highly of them, and they're really expensive. So um, my sister found this deal on On Clouds, and uh, it was a two for one. Buy one get one free on On Clouds. So for a $150 pair of shoes, it's a pretty good deal. And so my sister showed my wife and said, hey, what you want to in on this deal? She said, yeah, I do. And I was like, y'all should do it. That's great. Un- unprecedented deal. And so then uh, they're like, let's not buy two for one. Let's go four for two. Let's just really lean into this. And so they bought four pairs of shoes, paid what they paid. We'll call it $300. And they're so excited. My wife uh, proceeds to go text... Um, her family's group chat and said that on clouds is running a sale. It is amazing. Hop in on the fun. And, uh, our sister-in-law on my wife's side said, Hey, I was on on clouds site this morning. I didn't see this deal. And then my sister's brother proceeds to say, yeah, I think that on clouds is spelled O N C L O U D. And, and you went to O N C L O O ud.com and i don't think oncludes is a pair of shoes that exist and this scammer had copied oncloud's website to the t at oncludes.com it's just too good to be true there's no way it can happen it's way too good to be true and Zacharias says, hey, Z- hey, Jake Gabriel, hey, thanks for coming. I've been around the block before, okay? Um, what you're telling me is just too good to be true. I've wanted children. 
I've wanted children for so long, and now I'm an old man. And I, I have buried that dream long ago, and you're asking me to go exhume it and to have hope again. I, I'm not going there. I can't go there, in fact. It's just too good to be true. This dream deferred causes far too much pain. And as Langston Hughes, this 20th century poet, one of the most influential poems there is, says this in his uh, poem, Dreams Deferred. He says, what happens uh, to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? Zechariah says, you are inviting me to go tap into a dream that's been deferred. I don't want to go there. And of course, it makes sense that hopelessness would harden the heart. For Zechariah, hopelessness hardens the heart and the pain in his life has shaped him so much that hope seems so unreal. Too good to be true. And for us, it's the very same thing. Wherever you may be in life, you may think to yourself, I have looked, I remember being younger in years and looking to where I was right now, however old I may be, and think, surely it's going to be X, Y, or Z, and it's nothing like it. I thought life would be like this, and it's not. Because I've wanted things and not had them, I've had things and lost them, whatever it may be, I'm pretty disenchanted. You could have think to yourself, I've worked hard to get to where I am in my career, and if my career was personified, it would be treading water, if not submerged. You could think to yourself, I thought by now in my life I'd be married, and I'd have kids, and I'd be happy and content. Or you can think, hey, you know what, I, I am married, and I do have kids, and I thought I would be happy and content. The things that mark and mar us make sense disenchantment and hardness and hopelessness and dreams deferred begin to set in and become more real than hope itself. And that's exactly why Zechariah says, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? It's like what uh, the Langston Hughes of cinema, uh, Morgan Freeman says in Shawshank Redemption. He says, after his friend Andy Dufresne has blasted music throughout the whole entire uh, prison it locked the door to the warden's office blasted music to give life to this concrete cold setting he says they can never take away the song from me it's in my heart andy dufresne says it's, it's hope in my heart and and after being there for decades morgan friedman says let me tell you something my friend hope is a dangerous thing hope can drive a man insane it's got no use on the inside you better get used to that idea Hope is a dangerous thing, and it is. When you're hardened, when you're, when you're disenchanted, when you're confused, when you're hurt, when you're in pain, when you just are running on empty, whatever it may be, hope is a dangerous thing. And yet, what we don't understand too and grab hold of at the same time is hopelessness is even all the more dangerous. And Zechariah wants to know hope. And yet hopelessness seems so real. 
And so Gabriel says, listen, I hear you say this to me. And here's what I have to say to you. In verse 19 and on, Gabriel, this angel of the Lord, says, I'm going to make sure you know it. He says, and the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and be unable to speak until the day that these things that I've told you take place. Because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel says to him, hey, I've told you something. And actually, I told you it because God told it to me. And it's going to happen. And thus, it's going to happen. But until it happens in its fullness, which we'll talk about in a second, you will be silent. You'll be unable to talk. You'll be muted. That's why he comes out of the temple not being able to speak. He's quieted. Now, really quick caveat. What we see here is this moment where um, there is a season of silence that Zechariah enters into. It's a rigor of refinement, of suffering. We have the gift as the readers, like Job in the Old Testament, like Zechariah here, to see behind the curtain of the why behind the what of rigor. The why of the rigor behind the what of the rigor. And so... um, in Job's instance, the why is uh, Satan in Job 1 saying to God, hey, Job is your servant. He loves you. I bet I can get between he and you if I just inject some suffering into his world. God, would you let me do it? And God says, let's do it. It's this theodicy. What do you do with suffering in God? And here we see Zechariah lacks faith and he doesn't believe God's um, promise to him and goodness to him. And so then he goes into this season of silence. The caveat is when we see suffering, experience suffering, no suffering, no rigor, all these things, we cannot assume that with, I'm just lacking faith. We're not supposed to look at this story and think to ourselves, suffering equals, I've got a faith up. We don't have the mind of God. What the story is actually offering to us, I think, is that we're supposed to look at the things that are the rigor and the suffering and the seasons of silence and actually call them exactly what they are. Call the spade a spade. Give it, as my counselor would say, give it a seat at the table because it's real. Because it's oh so real. And whether you're firm in faith or struggling or filled with doubt or unbelieving, whatever it may be, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the seasons of silence help the human heart are intended for the human heart to mold itself around the heart of God, to be shaped to the tuning fort of the song that God is singing so we too can join in that chorus. So how do we, what do we make of this forge of silence? Forge being the the iron, the the refinement, that makes it stronger than it was before. What do we make of the forge of silence? It shows us two things. First, it shows us something about God. The thing it shows us about God is that God, God's heart is seen here because when Zechariah says, hey, how am I supposed to know this is going to happen? God doesn't say, you know what? You little brat, you didn't believe me. I'm out. God is so committed to Zechariah knowing the promise he's giving him that he says, I'm not going to let even your lack of faith get in the way. The things that happen to you, 
or the things even that we put in between us and God. God won't let that get in the way of the promises getting to his people. That's God's commitment. That's what we see about God here. And thus the silence that Zechariah has, the suffering he has, is not an indictment upon him. It's an instrument for him. For him to see God really is good on his word. That's what we see about God. But but we also see something about us. We see something about us in this forge of silence. In this forge of silence, what we see about us is that we, unlike good cardiologists, who when they see a blockage in an artery, just bypass it. That's a good thing. Um, Unlike good cardiologists, instead of bypassing a pain or silence or suffering or rigor, we're supposed to go right through it. Articulate it, name it, go right through it. Because when we do that, when we're in those seasons of the rigor, the pain, the silence, the suffering, the hard, when we're in those seasons, when you articulate it, all of a sudden you're naming something and putting putting a quantity and a quality on something that will be undone one day. And if it's not, then why in the world is Christmas Christmas? Why in the world is Easter Easter? Why in the world is Jesus claiming to be everything and all the while being numb to our world? When we name and articulate the pain that makes us, all of a sudden we'll be able to be marked by a song that's beautiful. Sorrow plays into a song, and it's not a song of sorrow, it's a song of hope. We have to articulate the darkness in our life, in our hearts, in our world, so that we can sing. So, my question for you is this, what is that darkness? What is that articulation, the seasons of silence, the things you've been asked to go through and wade through? What are those things? What are the... What things in your world make the promises of Christmas and the joy of Christmas and the, the hurrah of Christmas futile, worthless, unenjoyable, unbelievable, actually not being able to be believed? Where do you share the words of Zechariah where you've been to the block, you've been around it, you know life, you know rigor, and you like Zechariah say, how shall I know this to be true? How shall I know this? Now, last um, Sunday night, every Sunday after Thanksgiving, so put that in your head, tattoo it in your head, we have a a lament service as we enter in the season of Advent and really uh, get excited in a very uh, intentional way the promises of Christmas and Advent. And so in this lament service, one piece of it is just a beautiful service that Sammy does and, and, and leads the charge on. Uh, there's this lament um, part where you um, have a litany of grief, where you name things out and you remember amid all the promises of God, these are the things that mark and mar your world, the part of your life. And so um, Zechariah had to be silent to really grab hold of the promises of God. And so what we're going to do is just that. Right now, middle of a sermon, we're going to do that. And the things that played in the lament service last Sunday night are going to be on the screen. And Steve, about every six seconds, would you just hit next? Naming and articulating the darkness and the brokenness and the pain and the rigor and the silence is a friend.
evil, it's a variant. It will offspin and offspin and offspin into particular small things. Looking at the variants and naming the variants and putting your finger in articulating the brokenness and sadness is not something that puts salt in the wound. It's the biggest asset you have with Christmas in mind. In the forge of silence for Zechariah, he had to know the promises of God. As I'm silent for eight and nine months, the promises of God really are coming down the pike. And it took him eight and nine months to get to. God works in hearts over time as we see and grab hold of what he has promised you because he has promised you much. The forge of silence. Let's take a breath. Okay. Second, the fullness of song. The fullness of song. Now, um, because I live by um, a social code, we don't put a Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving. And so um, last last Saturday um, afternoon after Thanksgiving, we bought our Christmas tree. And then Sunday, we, we put it up uh, during our son's nap time. And uh, when we woke Fox up, our two-year-old up from his nap, and the Christmas tree was lit with the lights and the ornaments and this light uh, star up top lit up, we uh, got him up. This um, When he wakes up from a nap, he's got a gargoyle. But we got him up from his nap, and he had his hair and squinty eyes. And, and we walked down the stairs, and he sees this tree that's lit up, filled with color, and a star on top. And his eyes go big, and his face fills ear to ear with a smile. And all of a sudden, he breaks out in his favorite Christmas song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. The reality of Christmas before him incited in him a song. The reality of Christmas before him incited in him a song. And it's the very same thing that happens with Zechariah. Remember, the angel said to him, Zechariah, when the promises I have told you come to fullness, you will be unmuted. You will be, your tongue will be loosed. You'll be able to speak when everything I've said will be true. Now, is, is the trueness and the fullness of the promise that given to Zechariah, is that happening? Is he able to speak when his son is born? No. Is he able to speak when he holds his son for the first time? No. Is he able to speak when he changes his first diaper? No. Is he able to speak all of a sudden when the fullness comes, when his son is circumcised? No. The circumcision thought, giving this child to God. Zechariah is able to speak when his son is named. Because he goes and he's silent still, and they go to the temple to uh, have him uh, circumcised, and um, the sign given to him of entrance into the family of God, of the circumcision on the eighth day as an infant. And they go and they say, what is the name of this child? Just like we do when we have a baby baptized. And all of a sudden, Elizabeth, his wife, says, his name will be John. And everyone's like, uh, sorry, what's the name of the child? John. And they say, no, 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 sorry. No one is named John in your family. His dad's name is Zechariah. So he should be called Zechariah Jr. And she says, his name will be John. And they look over at this mute Zechariah 
And after being silent for eight to nine months, what do we see happen? His tongue is loosed when he says his name will be John. That's when his tongue is loosed. Because that's when the fullness of the promise given to him really is fully actualized. there right before him. Everything is there. What does that mean? It means that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they wanted a child for so long. And all of a sudden, the naming of this son is not going to be something that furthers his lineage of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The naming of the son is going to be John because it's going to further the mission and the kingdom of God. And all of a sudden, after eight or nine months, Zechariah finally grabbed a hold of that. The silence that he had been through, the season and this forge had shaped him so much that he finally understood he really is supposed to be the forerunner, the preparer of the Messiah. And therefore, he will be called John. His tongue is loosed, not when his son comes into the world, but when he realizes why his son needed to come into the world. Because the Messiah is coming. Silence had made him know something. And then he goes off into the song to show what that something is that he realized and had to come to amid his silence. What is it? It's that God is good on his word. And in the first half of his song, he sings that to God. In the second half of the song, he sings it to his son and about his son. But in both sections, he sings the same thing, the same kernel of truth. It's that God is good on his word. In the first half of the song, 80, uh, 68 to 75, he says, God, you have in the Old Testament told your people much. You've given covenants. He names David and Abraham covenants, all the prophets. He says all those things happen and guess what? It's all coming true right now. God, you are good on your word. And because of that, all of a sudden, what we see is that because he's good on his word to the Old Testament people of God, he sings. And in the second half of the song, what we see in 60, uh, 76 to 79 He says, and God, you are good in your word because you told through Gabriel something to me that I've had to been massage and get my head around all of a sudden for these eight or nine months, something. And it's this, is that the Messiah really is coming through my son. And because of that, I'm going to sing because you've been good on your word in that promise from Gabriel to me. All human history of the Old Testament has been waiting for him because God is good on his word and he's come. And all the cosmos has been waiting for him because God is good on his word and he's come. And Zechariah's heart of hearts deferred dream wants something and God is good on his word. We see the sun come. And at the very end of this uh, telling of John the Baptist and the song, we see these words in verse 79 that, that John the Baptist is here and John the Baptist is supposed to prepare the way for this one person. Here's what this person does. This Jesus is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in a way of peace. The same notes, the same characteristics of a God who in Psalm 23 does this. He leads his people in paths of righteousness for his namesake, not Zechariah's namesake. He walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. The nearness of God 
And Psalm 23 was something that Zechariah now knew, and it was coming because the Messiah was about to be born. When he gets near the reality of Advent, the coming of Jesus, his heart sings. That's what we're being invited to with this idea and the story of Zechariah. And like Zechariah, actually, what we, when we sing, when he sings, when we sing, what we're doing is we're singing a song of protest. It's a protest song because this thing we're singing about, the thing we want most, isn't here yet. It's coming. But because we know it's coming, we can sing into the darkness. Even though we don't have it right before our eyes. And the beauty of Christmas and all these songs is not because it gives this um, warmness to us, this fuzziness to us. It's a great reason to, to, um, to have great food, great drink, um, great festivities. The reason we should get so excited about Christmas is because when we get near the realities of Christmas, our hearts should sing. Because Christ has come for you. And Zechariah knew that. And actually, Zechariah wants us to know that. Because Gabriel wants us to know that. Because God wants us to know that. And it's impossible to sing if we don't grab hold of that God is good on his word. It's impossible to sing if we don't fully realize God is good on his word that one day all the sad things really will become untrue and they'll be made untrue and we'll actually see them be unraveled to be made untrue. So when you articulate things in your life and your story in the seasons of, of, of silence, in the forge of silence, everything you go through, Jesus will have something to say about. And because of that, we sing. For Zechariah, he sings because the first advent, the coming of Jesus, was going to be right before his eyes. And for us, nowadays, in 2023, we sing because the second coming of Jesus, this advent, is going to happen right before our eyes. He will come to make all the sad things be made untrue. And because of that, when we get near the realities of Christmas and the promises and the hope of Christmas, we sing. Let's pray. Lord, John's job was to prepare the way for you. And when he saw you in, in, your, in your fullness, when he saw you in really 3D, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we sit in, in darkness and shadows, would you come and meet us so that we would sing a song like Zechariah finally was able to sing when he understood, God, you are good on your word and your promises to your people. For those who are stumbling, would you lift them up so they may know it? For those who are in step, would you encourage them? For those who don't even know how to put the left foot in front of the right, would you enter into their world? Lord, would you make this Christmas and Advent season something where we grab hold of more of the promises of God because there are protests to the world, into our hearts, into the darkness, 
that everything that is not of you will be made untrue one day. And therefore we sing. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Into our hearts, into the darkness, that everything that is not of you will be made untrue one day. And therefore we sing. We pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.